Let me first say how grateful I am for this opportunity to fellowship with you and worship our common Savior together. I've had the privilege of a Zoom acquaintance with your pastor for some time now. I'm glad to have long last actually shaken his hand. Some of you, I've very few, but some of you I've known for decades. And so, once again, thank you for this opportunity to worship together. Turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and we'll begin reading at verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You have not received the spirit of slavery, leading again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we also may be glorified with him. I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he, that is his Son, would be the firstborn among many brethren. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long, we were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Our God, it is your face we seek, your word we long to hear, your truth we wish to internalize, and we pray, O oh God, that you would be pleased to so work uh, in me and in the congregation that you will be exalted and our hearts will be lifted up to praise and love you all the more. We ask in the name of him who died so that that indeed might come to pass. In the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, we, we should be thankful. There are many, many reasons why we should be thankful. God has created a, a beautiful world, and he's filled it with all kinds of pleasures and challenges and opportunities. And he's allowed us to live in this world that he has created. He revealed himself to us. And for those of whom this is true, he drew us to himself. Although we had little, if any, interest in him, except that we expected him to make us happy, healthy, perhaps rich, give us a long life and meet our expectations. Apart from that, we wanted him to leave us alone so that we could carve our own paths through life. And yet, in spite of that arrogance, in spite of that selfishness, in spite of that rebellion, he sent his son to be our savior, our, our Messiah, our Christ. And he destined us for glory. Destined us for glory. Do we understand really what that means? Do we understand the text that speaks about Christ in us the hope of glory. 
Of course, when we think of glory, we first of all, hopefully, we certainly should think first of all, about God's glory. But that is not the end of the matter, because for reasons that we will never understand, God has chosen to create a fundamental relationship between His glory and our salvation. Now, Scripture uses various words to describe salvation, and I'm sure that many of them will be familiar to you. We're, we're justified, we're redeemed, we're forgiven, we're adopted, we're regenerated, we're sanctified, we're reconciled, and the such like. But there is a term that we seldom associate with salvation and is in fact very much the, the very woofen fabric of what our salvation will ultimately result in. It's a term that talks about reality now, but primarily about reality that will culminate, climax, be fulfilled in the future. And that term is the term glory, destined for glory. Or, once again, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now that term glory has already appeared in the text that we read a number of times, and in each and every one of them, the glory referred to is actually not the glory of God. It's yours. It's mine. Now, of course, every aspect of our salvation, every part of it, will climax, will, will uh, culminate in the future in ways that we cannot today understand. I mean, to some extent, hopefully, we understand what it means to be forgiven. But wait until that day comes. And we hear that, that the word that we're familiar with and yet we will not expect. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Or, or reconciled. I mean, we are reconciled with God. But think of the day when we shall see him face to face. Or sanctified. We are sanctified in the sense that we're set aside for Christ. We're sanctified in the sense that we uh, now have this struggle against sin and sometimes all too seldom overcome sin. But there will be a day when we will be without spot or blemish or any such thing. Utterly sanctified. So too with regard to the term glory. Do you recall, and when I ask a question, if I'm not immediately answering, I'm waiting for you to answer, okay? Do you recall the goal to which we were predestined? It's going to be a long sermon. To be conformed to whose image? To be conformed to the image of his son. Can you even begin to imagine what that means? 
Well, it, it all sums up in this one word, glory. Now, what we now have and what we are taught by the word of God and the promises of the gospel to expect is here in order to impact the present and to transform our lives in the here and now in a, in a very radical way. For example, Paul could say that being justified by faith, a work that is uh, accomplished in the past, we have in the present peace with God. So what happened is now impacting our lives and more than that he can talk about our having been adopted and yet talk about the fact that we await the ultimate of our adoption. And in the present, by virtue of that, we cry out with the spirit of adoption, Abba, Father. And so every aspect of these various words, these various terms which we use to describe salvation, all have something to do with the past, something meaningful and enlivening and transforming and challenging and sometimes rebuking in the present, but they also have to do with the future. There's a verse that I, I know you're all familiar with, Romans 3.23. Can someone quote it for me? It begins with the word all. All have sinned and come short of what? What does that verse mean? What does it mean that we have come short of the glory of God? That's, that's worth thinking about. In chapter 2, preceding chapter 3, verse 7, he tells us that it has to do with what he describes as glory, honor, and immortality. And he says that the best among men seek that glory, honor, and immortality because they do not have it. It is yet written on their hearts. It, it, it's part of their inner being by virtue of the fact that they're human, created in the image of God. And so they, they long for and they strive for and they hope for glory and honor and immortality. Now, we'll come back to this idea of uh, glory because that will be our theme, but let's, let's begin with Paul in Romans chapter 1. Because if we do so, this will help us somewhat understand the glory as an aspect of our salvation. In Romans chapter 1, Paul tells us that mankind was delivered over to a frustrating humility. Uh, that is to say, uh, a reality that is out of sync with its original purpose. Now, how did this come to pass? Paul tells us that man subverted and subdues the truth, and he does so inevitably. So he knows what is right. He knows, for example, as he says at the end of the chapter, that those who do the things that he's enumerated earlier are worthy of God's judgment. 
And yet, knowing they subvert the truth, they suppress the truth, they ignore the truth, they deny the truth, they disobey the truth, and they act contrary to it. In other words, man worships himself by making his own pleasure and his own will his highest good, his only standard. And certainly in these days, which are so similar to the days that Paul faced in Roman, uh, in the, when he wrote the letter to the Romans, we can understand that. I am what I am and I am what I want to be. Reality does not make me to be what I am. If I want to be a man, I'm a man. If I want to be a woman, I'm a woman. If I want to be uh, rich, then I'm going to do anything that is necessary in order to become rich, regardless of whom I uh, tread down as I make my way towards the riches. I'll ignore my family, I'll neglect my children, I'll, uh, I'll betray my wife, I'll, I'll do anything as long as I can satisfy this longing in my heart to be all that I want to be. Paul puts it this way, man was given over to dishonorable passions. The women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, shamelessly committing acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their errors. Now, how, how did all of this come about? I mean, this is not the way that God created man. He created him upright. And he showered him with blessings in the garden and and surrounded them with exquisite delights and great promises. In Romans 5, in a nutshell, Paul puts it this way. This is how it happened. By one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That one man is Adam. Our first father, the father of all humanity. And he disobeyed God and as a result he impacted all of his descendants, all of mankind. Human nature was invaded by an expansive cancer called sin. And that sin has distorted human nature. So that instead of loving him who was worthy of all our love and all our devotion, all our affection and every sacrifice that we might ever be called upon to make, we are challenged repeatedly to love ourselves, to please ourselves and to serve ourselves. And therefore, instead of being those beautiful image bearers of God, glorious and holy, and kind and loving and merciful, we became sinners. Filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's righteous decree. They know, but they ignore. 
And ever since then, mankind is engaged in this endless search for themselves. In other words, for glory, honor, and immortality. Instead of the shame and the dishonor and death, which is now the a lot of all mankind. Men are engaged in a, a desperate effort to to get out of themselves. We want to go to the moon. We want to go to Mars. We want to control the elements. We want to create a, a universe, real and virtual, in which, in which we reign supreme and where, in which our will is what is done. And mankind is unwilling to recognize that the only way that we can find ourselves is if we seek and find ourselves in God. And so they've fallen from this state, or to put it again in Romans 3.23 terms, they have come short of the glory of God. Once created a glorious creature, look at us now. And yet, ever since our first father's original sin, God in his kindness is engaged in drawing some of mankind back to himself, renewing the marred image in man, and restoring them to the glory of which they now come short. Granting them the honor and the immortality that was lost through the sin of our first father. That's what it means to come short of the glory of God. And it bears repeating. We are in rebellion against God whenever we try to assert ourselves. Whenever we try to hide our sin, rather than expose it to the light of God's all-seeing eyes, who sees our sins anyhow. Every time we make excuses for ourselves, every time we try to justify ourselves, we are damaging ourselves. Our mind has become darkened. God has given it over to futile thinking, to foolishness. And this is according to the very simple principle that if you sow oats, you can't reap barley. And if you sow sin, you cannot but reap the consequences of sin. We cannot escape that. Nor can we escape God, because we were all made for God. We were made to reflect God in His glory and in His beauty. And we were made by His wonderful grace to as the confession puts it, enjoy him forever. But ever since that initial act of rebellion in the Garden of Eden, man has come short of that. God, however, has remained true to his original intentions. And though all men have become liars, and in spite of the strenuous effort of mankind, God will yet bring man to glorify him. And God will yet bring men and women, boys and girls, 
to enjoy him, not for a moment, but forever. How do I know this? Because God is God. He cannot fail. It's not even that he chooses not to fail. He cannot fail. And those are very solid grounds for confidence. They are mine and I hope they are also your grounds. Before the world was made, he purposed to be glorified by and among mankind through those whom he predestined to be conformed to, me, to the image of his Son. And those are the amazing, I quote, riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints, of which Paul speaks, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1. It is God's glorious inheritance in the saints, or if you wish, among the saints. In other words, it's an inheritance that God will have from the saints and through them. Jesus, whom Scripture tells us is the very glory and image of God, will be the firstborn among many brothers. We read these verses and we kind of take them for granted and we don't plumb the depths of them and therefore we're all the more the losers for it. Jesus' many brothers will reflect God's glory and the stupendous beauty of his holiness because God has purposed that this would be the case. And the redeemed, all of the redeemed, will bear his image and will share in his glory. Yes, uh, look to the right of you, look to the left, look to the front, look to the back, look at your own hearts. I suspect that you would find it about as hard to believe as I do. And yet it's true. And that is an aspect of what it means to be a Christian. That is an aspect of what it means to be forgiven of our sins, to be taken up into God's family. And so uh, Paul deals with this subject repeatedly throughout his letters. For example, he tells the Thessalonians that God has called us to his own kingdom and glory. Not just to look at that glory, yes, but to share in it. In the second letter to the Thessalonians, he tells us that God called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet again, he says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ might be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. John spoke of this, if we can from just for a moment leave uh, Paul and go to John. Remember what he says, that everyone who has this hope in him, what is this hope? That we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Even the psalmist there speak about this in, in Psalm 17. He says, I shall behold your face in righteousness when? When I awake satisfied in your likeness. 
uh, going back to Paul, in this case in, in Colossians chapter 3 verse 4, Paul says, when Christ who is our life appears, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Glory is not a place. It's not a geography. It is what's going to happen to you and me and to that fellow Christian with whom you find so difficult to get along. We will be revealed with him in glory. In other words, if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, you are destined for glory. So, dear sister in Christ, dear brother in Christ, dear friend who is not yet in Christ, think about this. And if you are in Christ, remember, lift up your head. You have been destined for glory. And therefore the present is not to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Once again, the glory revealed in us. How often have we noted this term as we've sped, read, read through our Bibles? And this is something that God always intended. It's not just uh, something that uh, he concocted at some stage in the course of history. Everything that God does issues out of no other source but himself. Even his responses to us are the product of his movement in our hearts. You see, if you are in Christ, your salvation came as, uh, as no surprise to him. Uh, nor was it dependent upon anything but him. It was planned by his sure hand before the worlds were made. He had his eye on you. And he determined the how and the why and the when of your conversion. He secured your salvation by the death of Christ. Paul dares say in Galatians chapter 2, The Son of God who loved me as an individual and gave himself for me. And I've, I've often liked to put it this way. If you forgive the military example, you know the difference between a, uh, the use of a machine gun and a sniper's rifle? Machine gun, you just press the trigger and you blah, 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 blah. whoever gets hit is hit. But with the sniper, you aim and you hit who you've aimed at. Well, God is a sniper. He doesn't use a machine gun. And he determined your salvation, if you are in Christ, to the praise of his glorious grace. And it was to that end that God created the gospel. And to that end, for the purpose of the gospel, he created the world to be the stage in which his gospel would be worked out. And you who are in Christ are vessels of mercy which God prepared beforehand 
Does anyone remember the rest of that verse? For glory. God prepared you beforehand for glory. Now nothing of this is due in any way to anything at all that has to do with you or me as, a, as uh, the grounds, the reason, the cause. It's all God. It's all a divine decision. Framed by grace for the undeserving is part of, uh, of what Paul calls in Ephesians, God's secret and hidden wisdom of God declared before the ages for our glory. Sorry, that's actually in Corinthians. The wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And our glory therefore serves His glory. And now, having heard the call of the gospel and having been moved by the Spirit of God to respond to that call, God is now causing all things to work together for good, for the accomplishment of His purposes. Now what are those all things? It's, it's one of those favorite verses that we like particularly because we, we've torn it out of context. And we relate it to all kinds of uh, providential circumstances that have really nothing to do with the immediate purpose of the verse. This is not a rhetorical question. What chapter comes before chapter 8? Amazing. <laughs> chapter 7. And what does chapter 7 talk about? It talks about Christian failure. It talks about the, the struggle and the conflict and the frustration that Paul the Apostle experienced precisely because he delighted after the law of God in his inward heart but found himself torn between that delight and this, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> this other principle, this other law, this other habit that had been created in him. And so he cries out, who will deliver me, wretched man, from this body of death? And then, after chapter 7, what chapter comes? Chapter 8, am I, <clears throat> excuse me, am I mistaken? And how does chapter 8 begin? Does anyone remember? Come on, folks. There is therefore, you're whispering, sister. There is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation in spite of his failure. Why? Because of what God has done. Chapter division should be ignored in most cases. I mean, take the book, don't think, you know, you've read one chapter, you've done your duty today. Start at chapter 1 and finish at chapter 16 of the letter to the Romans. It won't take you too long, and if you do it time and time again, you will get a sense of the letter as a letter, rather than the texts and the portions divested from one another. There's no condemnation. And then he goes on to talk about the fact that Sure, we, we share in the struggles and in the pains that whole creation is experiencing. We're groaning with creation. And creation is groaning and waiting for, do you remember what it was waiting for? For the adoption of our bodies, our redemption. And so, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And actually it goes back to chapter 
6 where in chapter 6 he tells us we're to submit our instruments, the organs of our body to the instruments of righteousness to God. And then chapter 7, who will deliver me from the body of this death. And then in chapter 8, well, the body is going to be resurrected and it won't look like it looks now. It will be glorious. More than that, it will no longer be an instrument of sin. It will be in the fullest sense of the term an instrument of righteousness. In other words, well let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to start reading it, verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come pass, to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what lies in the future for us. And our present calling is to live in light of that future. After having described in Romans uh, the, a marvelous grace of God, first of all to sinful man, uh, unregenerate, and then to sinful regenerate man in chapter 8. And then illustrating it in chapters 9, 10, and 11 with God's uh, undeserved mercy towards the people of Israel. Does anyone remember the first word of Romans chapter 12? Therefore. Therefore what? Oh, should I maybe start with wherefore? What is the therefore there for? It is to send us back to remind us of the amazing grace of God and His faithfulness towards those whom He has chosen to be predestined sorry, whom he has predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Therefore, he says, present your what? Your bodies. There it is again. Chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8. Your bodies. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. Because this is your reasonable service, or as some would translate, this is your spiritual service. I mean, the, the only proper way to respond to the amazing grace of God is to dedicate ourselves to live for God. And so we're to live in light of that future, promised, secured future by the death of Christ and sealed in our hearts by the confirmation of the Holy Spirit who tells us that we are heirs and if heirs then we're joint heirs with Christ. In light of that we must live to the praise and the, to the glory of God. And then Paul, of course, goes on to spell it out in the most 
mundane practical terms of having to live together in the context of a, a congregation where people are so vastly different in their assumptions and their convictions and their uh, comprehensions and their cultural customs from one another. Uh, that was a tough thing. It always is a tough thing if we're serious about church life. Because we can't cloister in our little circles. We need to mesh. We need to meet. Particularly with one another, that is to say with those who are different from us. Or should I say rather with those who differ from us. I mean, we can't say, I don't like him because he doesn't, because he disagrees with me. Because he doesn't think like I do. At the moment, under the hand of God and by the work of the Spirit, we are undergoing a process of sanctification. But we must always remember that that very process is part of that which will lead us to the climax, to glory. Again, not a location, a condition, a status. We shall be changed. God has predestined us to glory. And if we look at things in that way, then we realize that even through the pains that we're undergoing, and God ordains for each one of us different kind of pains. Some are physical, some are emotional, some are familial. There might be all kinds of difficulties, but they are all instruments in the hands of God, whereby God the Spirit is working so that we would be transformed into the same image of God from one degree of glory to another. Surely this should, this should provide us with a perspective on life that would help us see beyond the immediate. See beyond the immediate pain or the immediate gain and think in terms of God's ultimate purpose for us, that we should be like Him. And so, to be like Him means that we should today endeavor to be like Him. We should today endeavor to relate to the various circumstances of life in which we find ourselves in ways that will exalt God. Knowing that if He has called us according to His purpose, then the day will come when nothing can separate us. And then, the command, be holy even as the Lord your God is holy, becomes first of all an aspiration. It becomes a desire, it becomes a longing in our hearts. But the text says, ye shall be holy even as the Lord your God is holy also becomes a promise. It becomes something that encourages us as we fall flat on our faces. And if you're anything like me, you, you'll do it many times in the course of every day of your lives. Sometimes even at night. You will fail. But you've been destined for glory. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the love of God 
which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And therefore, we can rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That is to say, rejoice in hope of sharing in that glory because the day has been secured by Christ. Therefore, brethren, or as Paul puts it, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Here is our salvation. And here is also not only our salvation, but here is our calling. Our calling to live for God to the praise and the glory of His name in a way that will show that we really do have this hope in us. If you are a Christian, you should be invigorated and encouraged by this hope. Are you? Are you guided by it? Does this hope find harbor in your heart? And does it find practical expression in your life? Or do you, do you go through life gnawing at the bare bones of, of present reality as if uh, there's nothing more to be had. Do you hold your head high in the face of these challenges? We have in our congregation up in Washington State a number of people who are exemplifying exactly what I talk about. We have a young couple. They were they were married, they've been married maybe about less than a year and a half. And they were pregnant, and the doctors told them that their child will be underdeveloped, he will have difficulty in breathing, he's likely not to live a long life, and if he does, he will be constantly dependent upon them for everything. And therefore, they were encouraged ten times to abort. It's their first child. They're just newlyweds. But of course they declined. And they're loving this child and they're caring for him. He's just born, little Benjamin. Just born. He's been in the hospital with his mother ever since his birth for the last 10 days or so. Dad finished his work and he rushes to the hospital. And they're learning how to try to care for the little child. Or to take another example, our previous pastor, presently still serving as an elder, uh, Pastor Bruce and his wife, Terry. Uh, something's happening. Her, uh, her immune system is attacking her brain. She's, she's, she's losing her ability uh, to remember things, to communicate. She sometimes goes into a kind of a don't know how to describe it, a deterioration of his cognitive powers to the point that she acts irrationally, she's lost balance. And then on top of that, she's just had a stroke. She was in hospital for about 10 days and uh, just released from hospital now, still undergoing therapy. But the nurses were saying, Terry, you're so much fun. You've got such a sense of humor. 
such a positive attitude to life. Uh, and Bruce, who's for this last year, has hardly been able to leave his, his wife's side. I mean, they're both exemplary in the way that they're not gnawing at the bare bones of reality. They're rejoicing in hope. They're confident. And they're showing their confidence by the way that they conduct themselves. And therefore, both Pastor Bruce and dear Terry, they're ministering to us as a church. They're preaching the, the Word of God by their lives. And their lives speak loud and clear. And so my question to you and to me is, do I do, do, do we lead the kind of life that speaks loud and clear about the gospel? About our hope? Or do we not? Let's pray. Our God, you amaze us by your kindness. You surprise us by your grace to think that you would destine sinful dust to bear your image and to reflect your glory. And not just dust, but sinful dust like us. Oh God, help us to trust you. Help us to live in hope, never give up the struggle, uh, to always trust you to accomplish your purposes in our lives and know that those purposes are always good, perfect, and acceptable. Truth be told, we often lose sight of your kindness, Lord. The realities of uh, life around us and of our weaknesses blind us to your truth. Sometimes Sometimes our sins persuade us that there is no hope. The world invades our vision, blurs the reality of your promises, leads us to unbelief or doubt. How could it be that we should ever bear your image and share in your glory and reflect it to all eternity? But you're God, you're God over all, and everything serves your purpose. Lord, please give us the grace to glorify you in the here and now of our lives, in the very teeth of uh, what appears to the eye and appeals, <coughs> appeals to the flesh. <clears throat> Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us our unbelief. Grant us grace to, under, <clears throat> to undertake the conflict with confident faith in you. Make us more than overcomers through him who loved us so, so that you might have glory and so that your will might be done in us as it's done in heaven. We ask this not because we deserve it, nor do we even dare ask it because we need it. But we ask it by the virtues of Christ, 
and because you have promised. 